On this episode, the comeback win to open the Ballard Cup. Doug has some pre-recorded flags to drop. And Paul Woods joins us. Special Argos anniversary. It's the Argos fan cast. Crack those cold ones, everybody. You can find us at Argos Fancast or anywhere you find your friendly neighborhood podcast. Just search Argos Fancast. I am Clay Chisholm. You can find me at all kinds of clay on the Twitter and Instagram machines. And joining us, as always, our resident historian from ArgoFans.com. He is the VP of Football Operations, Will Gertler, MBA. Good uh, evening, everybody. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ArgoFans or at www.argofans.com. Tonight on the FanCast, we're looking back at a very significant game in the 100 and almost 150 years of Argonauts history. We're going back to August the 7th, 1982. And uh, tonight we're joined by Paul Woods, author of Bouncing Back in which he chronicled the 1983 uh, Grey Cup champions. Um, but the story was such that um, it encompassed the 1981 to 1983 seasons. Uh, welcome back to the FanCast, Paul. Oh, thanks, Will. Nice to be back. It's been a while. Yes, it has. Um, so I guess just just to start with the, with the ultimate question, what made a win over Edmonton so important, um, given that it was only, you know, week six or seven of the season? Well, you know, going back in the years prior to that, in the late 70s and in 80, 81, um, it always felt like the Argos would get off to a decent start to the season. Then because this was when they were, they were not very good team. They, they ended up missing the playoffs most of those years, Uh, but they would get off to a good start. It would look like maybe this is the year we're going to be a great cup contender. Uh, And it just seemed like every stinking year come around early August, uh, the Eskimos would come to town, the Edmonton Eskimos as they were then named and they would beat the Argos and trigger a giant slump by the Argos that would knock them out of the playoffs. And of course, the Eskimos were the they were the powerhouse team of all time, right? They were in 1982, the the, the night we're mostly going to talk about. That was that was the year the Eskimos were at that point the four time defending Grey Cup champions. Um, they went on, of course, to win another one in '82. So they they ended up winning five in a row. No team has ever accomplished that besides them. So they were they were by far the 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 leading team in Canadian football, and they were the team that seemed to be the ones that always put the dagger into the Argos and ruined the hopes of everybody that this was going to be our year. Yeah. So just just to set the stage for for people, the Argos were going into this game. Two one and one. They had uh, tied Calgary in their season opener in a bit of a wild game where I believe they intercepted Calgary quarterback seven times, but uh, needed a late touchdown from Connor Holloway to I think it was David Newman to um, tie the game. They then went out to Edmonton and um, got beat by the Eskimos pretty handedly and. That was actually an important moment, Ball, because um, the Argos had brought in Joe Barnes in the offseason, and he had actually started the season as starting quarterback. 
he gets injured, which puts Connor Holloway uh, in there to um, start. And um, the Argos beat Montreal in a last-minute touchdown from Terry Greer uh, to Terry Greer. And then they go to Saskatchewan where they beat the Riders 44 to 22. But and having watched that game, it really wasn't the offense that generated uh, the points. Um, if you could sort of, I, I know, I believe I read once that Connor Holloway gets frustrated with um, having to explain what the run and shoot is to people. But if you could sort of explain to to people what the about Mouse Davis and the offense he had brought to Toronto. Sure. Um, so, yeah, uh, Chris, uh, Bob Obilovich, Bob Obilovich had been hired as the head coach uh, by Ralph Sazio, uh, a new head coach, and he brought in Mouse Davis as the offensive coordinator. In those days, the staffs were small. There were only four assistant coaches, so Mouse was one of the two on offense. And he brought up this offense that he called the run and shoot. It was an offense that he used in U.S. college football uh, he'd started it using it in high school, actually, and it was a it was a, a very intricate passing approach that Obilovich realized when he after he met Mouse Davis, he was introduced to him, I believe, by his brother Jack, who uh, who lived in Oregon and, and had seen what Mouse had done. Bob Obilovich figured out this would be really good in Canadian football. We've got X, we've got motion, we've got other rules here that would favor the offense if we if we do what Mouse seems to think we can do. Um, and so Mouse comes up and brings introduces this offense, and it's a complicated offense with an intricate timing and intricate intricate. The one thing that people maybe don't realize is that it had very intricate um, positioning. Each receiver in the, in the formation had to know the distance that they were going to be from the sideline or from the numbers or from the hash marks. They had to be like with, you know, they had to have every step was measured and, and had to be careful and precise. And it took them a while to figure this out. And, and that, that opening game, you mentioned the game against Calgary was not a very impressive performance. It was, it was a good comeback by the Argos to, to tie the game. Um, but they hadn't looked good despite the fact that their defense kept handing them the ball from all those interceptions. Uh, the game uh, in Edmonton was a, was a disaster. It was a typical Edmonton beatdown of the Argos. Uh, I believe the score was 31 to 12. I'd have to check that, but it was something like that. And, and it was a dominant performance by the Eskimos. And, and as you said, Joe Barnes, who had been more or less the, the man that they intended to be the starting quarterback after picking him up in a trade from Saskatchewan, he ended up going out with a, a lacerated buttock, a pretty crazy injury to suffer. And, and so the team became Condridge Holloway's uh, for better or for worse. And as it turned out, it was for better. Uh, the game against Montreal at home was another tight, difficult win. They did win. Unlike the, the first game where they tied Calgary, they, they came back for a, a very late uh, score, Terry Greer from Holloway for the win against Montreal, but it was not an impressive performance by the team. The, uh, the run at shoot was still misfiring. Uh, and then, the, as you said, uh, well, the game in Saskatchewan in Regina, uh, 44-22 sounds good, and it was actually, I think it was something like 40, 41 to 
10 or something at one point. It was a, it was a huge beatdown on the scoreboard, but it was special teams. It was a, a, I believe there was a defensive touchdown by Steve Ackroyd on a pick six, or maybe it was, he might've scored on a fumble recovery, but there was defense and special teams were the primary contributors to that. It was a fun game to watch. The Argos didn't score 44 points very often in those days uh, prior to 1982. And so watching them lay a beating on a, on Friday night football on CTV was a lot of fun. Uh, but it was still not the offense that we were about to see. Uh, so that was the, that's the, what set the stage for this game against Edmonton, the fifth game of the season. And did you have, and what were your feelings heading to the exhibition stadium that night? Were you optimistic, pessimistic? Uh, trepidatious. <laughs> you know, I, I knew about what had happened. I'd, I'd been to some of those previous games against the Eskimos. In fact, I was the one I remembered the most vividly was in 1978 when I was at that time, I was living in London, Ontario. I wasn't a, wasn't a season ticket holder, but I, I took the, I took the via train to, to Toronto, uh, during the exhibition to go see the Argos play and, you know, go to take in the X and, um, watching I was sitting on the baseball stands that night on the on the south grandstand uh and the Eskimos beat the Argos 40 to 3 and it was just an awful awful game uh the only thing I remembered about is was a squirrel that got on the field and ran to the end zone and everybody erupted with a cheer because there was nothing else to cheer for uh so I had a lot of trepidation about about oh here come the Eskimos again I was I I I will tell you I mean I liked the Argonauts personnel I liked the team in 1981 when they were two and fourteen I thought we've got some real good players on this team between Condridge Holloway Cedric Minter Terry Greer Paul Pearson um, some of the young offensive linemen Dan Ferroni Tom Trefo um, I liked the personnel uh, Jan Carinci there were others uh, they brought in Bob Bronk in '82 and he looked like a really strong tough big hard running fullback. So I liked the team. I liked the makeup of the team, and I was pleased that they were two one and one heading into Game Five. But I certainly didn't think we're going to dominate the Eskimos. I had, I was, guess, I guess you could say I was cautiously optimistic, but worried. Right. Uh, so the game actually, I mean, the first quarter is relatively, I wouldn't say slow, but um, the Argos. Uh, do get a touchdown on, um, I believe Edmonton fumbled the ball well within their yep. own you know, the 10 yard line and uh, Cedric Minter ran it in. Um, yep. Then uh, of course it's, it, it's interesting to see, I know this is his last year with Toronto, but it's interesting to see Zen and Andrezision's name and, and you know, the, the mm. stats, I, I know he gets, you know, cut later in the year, but you know, he, he, you associate him with those dark years and, you know, he's, That's right kind of one of the guys who overlapped here. Um, but it's the second quarter, I think, when really this run and shoot offense started to click. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. It was the, sec- the second quarter when the, the, the Argos were moving from from east to west, so from the from the open end of Exhibition Stadium towards towards the, the baseball stands, the, the behind third base. And, yeah, the run and shoot started working. The, the suddenly – you know, Holloway was completing passes to Greer and to Pearson and to Carinci and to and to Minter and to Bronk and it and it just it just clicked and and it particularly clicked between Condridge Holloway and Terry Greer. I mean, they had they had played together a little bit the previous year because Condridge Holloway arrived in, in the 1981 season in a trade from Ottawa and Greer had had joined the Argos at the beginning of the 1980 season, but Greer got hurt early in the 81 season. He got hurt in about week four 
and basically was done for the season. So they had never had a chance to to really get to know each other, to develop any kind of chemistry or anything else. And then Greer held out in training camp in 82. He was looking for a new contract. Uh, and so he missed a fair bit of camp. And uh, you know, when he arrived, finally, after settling the, settling with uh, Ralph Sazio, the, the team president and GM, uh, Condridge Holloway said to him, you're going to love this offense. And uh, Holloway was, was, I think, lobbying to get them to sign Greer because he knew what a, what a weapon he could be. Uh, and, but it took those four games. Really, you know, there was, nobody was particularly impressive in the offense. You know, one thing, just as a quick side note for, for recent CFL fans, uh, the Montreal game, the third game of the year, was the only appearance by the, the Argos' third-string quarterback at the time, a fellow named June Jones III, who uh, later became, you know, the head coach of the Hamilton Tiger Cats and... Uh, uh, you know, he had his sort of own own bit of fame many, many years later in Canadian football. But he he had been brought to the Argos by Mouse Davis specifically because he had Mouse had worked with him uh, in college. And and June Jones knew how the run and shoot worked. And he was brought up either to to be the quarterback and, and actually and and run this offense or to at minimum teach it to the other quarterbacks Holloway and Barnes which which is what he ended up doing and after he got he got hurt in that Montreal game he came on in relief of Holloway uh, got hurt and we never saw him again. And he was actually gone from the team not that long after they didn't, you know, they were, they weren't keeping big rosters in those days. They let him go. He was, he was hurt and wasn't going to be of any use to them. Ralph Sazio thought, I'm sure most Davis might've had a different thought about that. Uh, and he was gone, but it was, it was, as you said, the second quarter of the game at home to Edmonton game five was where things started to work. And particularly with Holloway and Greer, uh, two, two plays in that quarter that I can remember one in particular was the, was a touchdown pass that Greer scored uh, pretty late in the quarter. I think I'd have to go back and see the timing, but yeah, it was 40, a pass 40, on the right side. Yeah. And it so it went from a 15 to four Argo lead to a 22 to four Argo lead, which completely boggled the minds of the, of the, the two color commentators for CBC, uh, Leo Cahill and Ron Lancaster, two of the most famous uh, Canadian football personalities of all time. They were in the booth with Don Whitman and at halftime, they were just agog. They could not believe what they were seeing. How is it that the, the Edmonton Eskimos, the four time champions have come into this building where the Argos always get beat by them and the Eskimos are getting dominated, getting beat down by the Argos. They've never seen anything like it. Uh, so yeah, it really was that you could, you could really pinpoint the run and shoot success and it became an incredibly successful offense for the team, both at the rest of 82 and, and even into 83 when they of course won the Grey Cup, even after most Davis left, you can really, I think, peg it to that Edmonton game and particularly the second quarter of that Edmonton game. That's when it worked. Yeah, just just as an aside, yeah, you, definitely in the '83, you, in the first like in, in the first game that, uh, against Calgary, you you still see the motion, but if you watch a, a a game later that year, it seems to be not as as prevalent. Um, Clay, I, I believe you had a question. Yeah, I, you know, as as a fan going into this, like it's it's you know, we can look back on it and we can okay that was the turning point, but as a fan at that time, did you? have a sense that okay something's different all of a sudden like th- this is yes, really absolutely. good yeah absolutely it was it was it, there's no question i i i became a complete believer 
if, you know, I mean, I was always a big Argo fan and I was basically sort of, you know, I believed in them even when they were lousy, but, but I totally bought in that night. I, you know, they, at the end of the game, it was so exciting the way it ended and, and with the Argos winning by, by eight points, um, the people burst onto the field. I mean, there was no security and, and hundreds, maybe a few thousand fans streamed onto the field to, to basically soak up the atmosphere, try to, you know, pat a pat a player on the shoulder pads just 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 celebrate it was like we'd won the gray cup and and i was one of them i mean my my wife and i were at the game together and i said to her i gotta go down i gotta i gotta be part of this so i went down and i and i you know sort of got on the field for for five minutes like hundreds of other argo fans and i did i came away completely believing yep that we are we're a real team this year this this is not this is not the usual you know, get off to a three and one start and then go on an eight game losing streak. This team's this team is going to not only contend, but we're going to be entertaining and fun to watch, which is exactly the way it played out. Uh, okay, so we actually have to. Uh, I know a lot of this discussion is going to surround the offense, but um, the defense actually played a very significant role in this game. Um, I don't have the sack totals in front of me. Uh, I think this was the first or second year they recorded them, but it got so bad for, you know, Warren Moon is, you know, one of the best quarterbacks in CFL history, one of the best quarterbacks in NFL history. It got so bad for him that by the end of the game, he's wearing number 14 instead of his usual number one. So I think it was um, Rick Moore was leading that defensive line uh, with a bunch of other guys but um they also deserve a lot of credit for um keeping edmonton down don't they absolutely they it was it was a it was a it was a dominant performance by the argos defensive line it was rick moore bubba wilson rusty olsen and leon Laskavich. uh and i believe if i'd have to check but i believe they sacked warren moon seven times and they, they they hit him so hard and so often that his jersey was ripped. His number one, his iconic number one jersey was ripped. And he had to wear that number 14, as you said, with no nameplate on it. And uh, as Rick Moore told me when I was doing interviews for the book, uh, you know, they could see that they were getting to Moon because he was getting happy feet. He knew he was going to get a huge rush on him. And he, he was more concerned with the rush coming at him than what he was trying to do on the field. Uh, it was it was probably the Argos in some ways the Argos' best defensive performance of that season. Their defense was not fantastic that year. It was good enough to get them to the Grey Cup, uh, but it was not enough good enough to win the Grey Cup. And and if you look at the the roster from '82 versus '83, the offense stayed about the same from '82 to '83. The defense was almost entirely turned over. Uh, so it was not a Grey Cup caliber defense, but they played Grey Cup caliber defense that night. Yeah, I think there was only three guys who made it to the 83. Rick Moore, Earl, and then Earl, Earl and Daryl Wilson. Earl Wilson, yeah, and Daryl Wilson, that's right. And and then Steve Ackroyd, who's one of the backup defensive yeah. back. And there may have been there may have been one other, but yeah, like I think that the Calgary game at the start of the season where they had the seven interceptions, Sam Johnson was the defensive back. I think he he picked off three. I think he was gone. You know, you would never heard of Sam Johnson after that, basically. Donovan Rose made it to 83, but he got cut when Carl Brazley got. Um, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it, but, but you're right. I mean, the, the, the defense that night really, they, 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 they just tore into, to Moore and Moon and that powerful Edmonton offense. 
uh, like I, the Eskimos had never seen from the Argos in the whole time of their dominance, which began really in about 73. Um, and uh, now, you know, to be fair, the Eskimos didn't get off to a fantastic start in 82. They were, they were three and five at Labor Day, and then they run out, ran off eight consecutive wins to, to end up, you know, going back to the Grey Cup, and they won it. Um, it was, you know, the, the, the farewell for Huey Campbell, the, the coach of the five-time champions, and he was heading off to the USFL. Um, so it wasn't like we caught the Eskimos at the very peak of their powers, but one of the reasons they were three and five at Labor Day was because the Argos beat them down pretty bad, right? So, uh, so yeah, Edmonton does start to make a comeback in, in the uh, second half, and we're about halfway through the fourth quarter, and the score, I believe, is the 23-21 Argos, and um, this is actually a, a play you discuss uh, that you dedicate quite a little bit in your book, too. But uh, why don't you tell us about uh, Connor Holloway's game-clinching touchdown to Terry Greer? Yeah, so you've set it up very nicely, Will. I mean, it's it's, it's a two. It's the, the lead's gone from 18 points at halftime to two points, and and you know, I said in the book, and it's, it's it was how I felt at the time. Like everybody in the building was was like holding their breath, like, oh my god, like we're gonna blow it again. This is the Argos. It's the Eskimos. There's no way we can. There's no way we can we can keep make this lead stand up. Um, and uh, what I was told by all kinds of players on the Argonauts offense that night was Holloway goes into the huddle and says, I think I forget how much time was left, six minutes, seven minutes, something like that. And we're 90 yards from the end zone or at their own 20 yard line. He says, you know, we, okay, here's the deal. We're going to go down there and we're going to score. You know, we are, we, they haven't seen an offense like ours and we're going to show it to them. Uh, you know, and then, so they move up, they, they get up to, I believe it's to their own 50. So they're, they're still 60 yards from, from, from the end zone. And uh, Holloway in the huddle says to his teammates, uh, I need five steamboats. You hold, you hold line. You guys hold them out for five steamboats. I throw the ball. Terry catches it. We win. And that's what happened. He, he, he took it. There was a ferocious pass, pass rush coming at him. Um, and, uh, he stood in there and he, and he fired the ball at the right moment for Greer one-on-one, uh, against Joe Holloman, who was an all-star cornerback for the, for the Edmonton. Uh, and uh, Greer's run again, again up the right sideline, again going east to west, heading towards the the, the baseball stands. Uh, and uh, he's in behind Holloman. The ball arcs in perfectly, full stride, full speed into his arms. He runs into the end zone, lifts it, spreads his arms out with the to, in triumph as he crosses thunderous applause maybe the loudest I ever heard exhibition stadium, although it got pretty loud in the Eastern final later that year, but that was an extraordinary moment where you just knew, man, like we just, we've just beaten the Eskimos. It wasn't, the game wasn't over, but it was over. Everybody knew we just, we just kicked Edmondson's ass. So it became a nine point lead. The Eskimos ended up getting another single, a meaningless single basically to make it an eight point game. But yeah, that pass, that 60-yard touchdown pass to, to Greer on a drive when he also, I think, had two other other receptions for about 28 or 30 yards. Uh, just it was it was the night it was the coming out party for for the Toronto Argonauts of the 1980s, basically. That because that, that that you know that was Bob Bilovich's first year. He coached them right through to '89. They became a contending team basically every year of the 1980s except for 1985 when they ran into a lot of injuries. And that was the night when the Argos got back into the conversation as a good football team in Canada and a conversation that went on for the next decade or so. Yeah. 
So just to wrap up a few, or just to, uh, uh, so Connor Holloway really, I guess, he revitalizes his career here. Um, the 81 season wasn't his fault, but, you know, he finishes this game, assuming the stats are right, because we know the box scores can sometimes be um, uh, not the best. Uh, he throws uh, 17 to 31 for 359 yards and uh, three touchdowns. Uh, Terry Greer catches uh, six passes for 177 yards and uh, two touchdowns. And um, so I guess I, it, it's, you know, you think of this in terms of an important game. I mean, the Argos arguably, if we look at it strictly by, you know, the definition of important, you know, they almost play a more important game later in the season in the last week when they needed to beat Ottawa in order to finish first place and get that by. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they ultimately they do beat Ottawa in Ottawa in the last week of the season. But, you know, it's interesting, you know, nobody really remembers that game, but they, they, they sort of remember, you know, they remember this game and they probably remember the game against, uh, B, you know, that was a, they, they lost in a blowout to BC, but they only remember that one because it was on NBC, I believe, when the mm-hmm. NFL strike was mm-hmm. going on. Um, why don't you just, if you, you just sort of summarize, I, I, I'm sure most Argo fans know, you know, unfortunately lost the Grey Cup that year to, to, to Tron, uh, Edmonton, but, um, you know, the, the, the run and shoot off, the offense remains pretty consistent the rest of the year, correct? It's just the defense was not good enough, uh, whereby the Argos lost a couple of shootout games, uh, if, if you will. Yeah, they, I mean, the, the game, the, the, the Edmonton game really was sort of, you, you mentioned about sort of the, the, the revitalization of Condridge Holloway's career. And, and yes, I mean, it, he went on, of course, to win the, the, the Shenley award as the most outstanding player in the league that season. He, he had, uh, you know, more than 4,000 yards passing, which at that time was a huge number. Um, and the, the, the run and shoot really did it for the most part, it was successful for the rest of the season. The BC game was a disaster. Uh, the, that NBC game was just awful 46 to 14 and, and, uh, the Argos ne- were never in that one, but, and they, and they did, they had a couple of shootout losses to Hamilton, um, where Holloway and, and Tom Clements went toe to toe and, you know, each threw for more than 400 yards in at least one of those games. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it, it's the game. I mean, I, I do have incredibly fond memories of the, of the, uh, that season ending game in Ottawa that clinched first place. I've never, I've never seen or come across a video of that. I don't, I don't know that there's any, any copies of that in the collector world. And I'd love to get my hands on one if there was, because it was, it was thrilling to see the Argos go into Ottawa needing and again you know keep in mind what what the argos were like in the 70s where they they would go into the last week of the season and as even if, if they'll be in the playoffs if they only lose the game by 15 points and they would lose the game by 16 points that sort of thing happened all the time uh and so here they are they're in the last week of the season they're on the road if they win this game they're in first place if they lose this game there's a very good chance hamilton moves ahead of them in the first place and uh they won and they won pretty easily. It was 28 to 14, I believe. And I remember there was a, there was a, you know, a late interception. I think, uh, I think it was by Zach Henderson, the defensive player of the year in the East. And, and it was just thrilling to see the Argos celebrating that first place finish. Um, 
and and yet be, maybe because it's not you know no there is no video of it that survived and maybe because it wasn't you know it was only the Ottawa Rough Riders it wasn't the Eskimos for various reasons maybe it hasn't sort of lived on in as, as iconic a thing as as that Edmonton game did but in my memory it's pretty clear and I mean I also remember I remember a game in Montreal they went to Olympic Stadium that season I uh, went to that game I, I drove to Montreal and saw the Argos play play the Alouette oh, this is the Concords actually uh, and there was you know there was like 6,000 people in a you know, 60,000 feet big oh it was a depressing mausoleum uh, but it was it was a game where the run and shoot brought in some, another new wrinkle which was Cedric Minter became the the key component of the passing attack. He they they were just he was he was not just being thrown screen passes and dump passes. He was he was running deep routes downfield and they were getting the ball in the hands of the running back that way. And it's like whoa, this offense has just got so much to it. Uh, so yeah, they had lots of they had lots of great iconic moments and they had lots of success that season. Of course, the Eastern Final was unbelievable, right? They won forty four to seven and they were up I think twenty. 29 nothing at halftime or some crazy thing uh in the fog uh you know terry greer beating his future teammate carl brazley on on an amazing touchdown to get the game started um so there's lots of great happy memories from 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 82 uh but it would be hard for anything to top that edmonton game because of what it meant it arguably the most important regular season game in argonauts history um certainly one of them um arguably the most exciting regular season game in Argos history. We've had some fun ones, right? I mean, I remember one in the 2000s of 48, nothing against Hamilton was kind of fun, uh, but nowhere near as, as, as tense and as, as exciting as the, as the game in August of 82 against Edmonton. And when you were, when you were starting to write bouncing back, did you have an idea right away that uh, your, the chapter about this game was going to be, I mean, I think there's three games you, you sort of feature prominently. The uh, yeah, or four, you know, the three of them are playoff games. I, I did, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have a plan in my mind at the time that I'm going to write a chapter about it. Although, as it turned out, I did. But I did know it was a hugely important part of the story. And everybody I interviewed, I asked about that. You know, every every member of that team, I I, I would often would begin the conversation with, "Let's talk first about the Edmonton game." Uh, and and guys were eager to talk about it and to give their perspective and their memories and recollections about it because because they all saw it the same way I did. This is this is the game that proved that we could do it. This is the game that proved to us as well as the fans. You know, the title of the chapter is "We're for Real," and that's what what that's what Dan Ferroni said to me. That's that yeah, that's how he summed up that game. We're for real. Uh, and that's how I felt about it. And so it was, it was fun to, to get guys talking about it and, uh, and to, uh, and to, you know, have my own kind of recollections kind of validated by the, by the players who were on the field. And then to get all the extra details about, you know, the things that were said in the huddle between the, the Holloway and the offense and the, the way that he and, and, and Terry Greer seemed to have a telepathy, you know, somebody said you could almost like see the rays the rays shooting between their helmets, like they were on a, they were on a communication wavelength that no one else was on. Um, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's really, it's so much fun to think about that. You know, you mentioned that you've been, you watched the, uh, the, the highlight package on YouTube and I, I haven't watched any of that for a while. I'm kind of feeling like I should go back and watch it again. I think I would get just as much of a kick out of it if I did, uh, even having yeah. seen it many times before. I mean, I have a copy. I have a copy the full game as well and I kept meaning to I just couldn't find the time in the last week to just take the two and a half uh you know three hours to just sit down and watch yeah. the whole 
Yeah. Well worth it. Well worth it for sure. So. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I did watch the, uh, for some, I did watch the whole 1983 season opener as an entirety, which was another neat game, but, uh, not the same, I guess. Yeah. I don't even know if I have that one. And if I don't, I need to get a copy of that one. Cause it was a, it was a fun game. Do, Paul, because. Oh, I do. Okay. Good. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> You got it for me, did you? Okay, good. You know, there's one, another one I would like to go back on because I, I, I have a very vivid memory of watching that one. I remember we had we had guests at our house that night uh, from out of town, and I said like we got to watch this game, you know. And it started at being in Calgary. It started at like 9:30 or something, but but I I can clearly remember watching that game and being being really excited by how good the run and shoot looked in in year two. Uh, even though Mouse was gone by then, it was just like okay, yeah, we're we're going to be a great cup contender this year for sure. And, and of course we won the great cup that year. Right. So it was, uh, yeah. we were more than a contender. We were the, we were the dominant team in Canadian football in 83. And it should be mentioned that, um, you know, after the long streak of not beating Edmonton, the Argos actually don't lose. Um, uh, well, they don't lose a home game to Edmonton for the rest of the, uh, decade. Yeah, they were. They, they, they was. It's the one team Edmonton couldn't beat. Even when they got back to the Grey Cup and won the Grey Cup in '87, and they had Matt Dunigan and Damon Allen, the Argos always gave them fits, particularly in in Exhibition Stadium. It was. It just became a thing. The Argos completely dominated that decade. Well, Paul, we want to thank you very much for joining us. And I mean, we we could probably I could probably just sit sit and listen to you guys talk talk about uh, Argos games of of the past for a long time, but. Um, I think I think we can we can you know put a bow on this one. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, and if uh, anybody wants to uh, read the the words from Paul specifically about this August seventh, um, nineteen eighty two game against the Edmonton uh, Eskimos at the time, you can get his book uh, bouncing bouncing back. Um, where can they get that book? Yeah, thanks for asking, Clay. I appreciate it. Uh, I mean, it's it, you can you can buy it online, of course. But if anybody wants uh, wants to get a copy directly from me, I've got copies available for sale. Uh, I can find them if people want them. My signature. I'm not a, I'm not an autograph collector myself, but if people like like to see a lot of people like to have uh, have signed copies, uh, they can reach out to me. I'm uh, on Twitter at pxw13. Uh, you can email me paulwoods13 at gmail dot com. Um, I'm happy to always happy to, to, to encounter, uh, have, have fresh encounters with Argo fans of the, of the present and the past. And, uh, you know, I gotta say, I think, uh, I think we got potential to be building some really good memories this year as well. And, uh, hopefully we're having similar conversations in the future about the, uh, the 2021, sorry, 2022 Toronto Argonauts. That was um, Paul Woods, uh, author of Breaking Back and the Year of the Rocket, uh, one of the preeminent Argo historians out there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very uh, interesting to have this discussion. You know, it's 40 years since that, you know, 40 years since that game. And, um, you know, the younger generation may not realize, and then I, you know, I, I'll admit I wasn't born yet, but the, you know, the older generation still speaks of that game with a lot of, you know, awe, yeah, and and just I mean, just listening to it and reading some of the the bits and and so, like, yeah, you know, it was one. It just sounded like one of those games that there was there was something 
bigger than the game, you know, in, yeah. you know, something, I mean, it was all about the, the game and the team, but there was just something um, bigger building in there that, uh, that, you know, as a fan, you just always want to be part of that. Exactly. As I mentioned in the intro, Doug's got some pre-recorded stuff for us. Uh, so he's not here. He's on afternoons this week. Uh, and, and you know what? I I think he, he's wishing that he could be on with us to talk about the, this game because it, wow, it turned out to be one hell of a game. <clears throat> the Argos uh, didn't look great in the first half coming out with just a couple field goals down uh, 14 to six, but then kicked it in high gear in the second half, in the second half, uh, 10 points in the third, 18 points in the fourth to uh, come out on top 34 to 20. Uh, Just going through some of the stats. um, McLeod Bethel Thompson, uh, 17 of 27, 230 yards, a touchdown. Uh, Andrew Harris running the ball, 14 carries, 47 yards. Um, A.J. Ouellette had one for 10 at the end of the game. Uh, catching the ball, Cam Phillips, four receptions on seven targets, 85 yards and a touchdown. DeVars Daniels had uh, had four on five for 73. Eric Rogers, welcome back, Eric Rogers, uh Three catches on four attempts for 30 yards. Brandon Banks caught a three-yard pass as well. Uh, Marky Thambles caught a couple. Curly Gittens Jr. had one. And Andrew Harris had two out of the backfield for seven yards. Uh, Boris Beattie went uh, three for four on field goals. Um, a little bit of an issue with a hold on uh, on one of the attempts. Well, um, yeah. The ball, well, that was the one where the long snapper rolled the ball to uh, yeah. John Haggerty. And it's actually, yeah. it was actually a, a very, it's very crucial that Haggerty actually had the reaction time to, he, I mean, he got the ball down. I mean, it, it was going to be tough for Beattie to make it, but at least at that point, we avoided complete disaster because the ball was kicked for a single to tie the game. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was, it was great. And I mean, it, with a long snapper, we had a, had some issues. We had uh, Jake Reinhardt go down with an elbow injury, um, and then we had the the backup uh, uh, long snapper get ejected from the game. Um, and then we're onto our third long snapper, <clears throat> Trevor Hoyt. Yeah, it's not not normally something that uh, you're that you're pushed into into doing a game is bring in your third long snapper, but I, I, really didn't, I didn't even know teams carry three long snappers. I, I think it's just a coincidence <laughs> that we had somebody else who could do do the long snap um, on defense. Damn. Winton McManus, another dominating game, 10, 10 defensive tackles, a special team tackle, and a forced yep. fumble. Um, Robert Priester had six six ta- uh, six tackles. Enoch Mwamba, five. And uh, we did have <clears> – <throat> Chris Edwards did have a big pick six uh, to uh, put the game on ice for the, the Argos. Yeah. Now, 
it was <laughs> it, it it was really a tale of two halves, right? You know, like honestly, you know, going into the half, I did not have a good feeling. I know I saw saw you at the half, well, and you did not have a good feeling either about this. Well, I mean, the one thing I, I did see was the score was fourteen to six. I'm like, really? We're only down, you know, the Argos are only down eight points. Um, but yeah, you, you sort of felt to yourself like, you know, would they be able to get anything going? Especially because MBT, I think, got sacked three or four times in that first half alone. And, you know, they weren't really able to get it. Uh, the offensive line wasn't able to really get anything going for Andrew Harris either. Um, and then, you know, to start the second half, they allow Hamilton to march down the field and um, uh, get that field goal. And you're sort of thinking to yourself, eh, you know, the defense had started to play well in the second quarter and then, you know, they had a long drive. Um, but I think it's key after that that, uh, you know, the number one, the offensive line starts to play uh, a, bit, a bit better, you know, pass protection. Uh, you know, MBT is able to find uh, uh, Cam Phillips deep for that uh, reception and then later, you know, uh, throws, uh, you know, escapes the pressure to throw that touchdown pass. And, you know, you sort of felt right there, you know, a, a momentum shift. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, a big turning point as well was uh, John Hagerty's punt towards the end of the third quarter where uh, it looked like he was heading into the end zone. But uh, <laughs> Hamilton's returner, Lawrence Woods, uh, chooses to field the ball and um, gets tackled, you know, with his own five, you know, ten, five or ten yard line. And that change of field position, I think, really, that that was the game right there because it started that sequence of events. You know, uh, unfortunately, Argos missed that field goal, but uh, you know, the defense stops Hamilton, and then uh, the big block punt happens. Uh, so, you know, John Hagerty's punting. Uh, you know, he averaged 54.7 yards a punt, which is which is pretty impressive. But uh, he uh, he did have a big uh, impact in turning this game around. The good, the bad. The ugly. Yeah, just like we've done all year. Doug gave us uh, some Cole's notes for his his uh, his stuff. So we'll we'll just let uh, Doug start off here. Well, <clears throat> he has a couple flags to drop on on this one. Is as, as we're going to start off with his ugly. Um, so we'll so we'll we'll play his uh, his pre-recorded flags here right for you. Illegal procedure, defense, they made the offense move, five-yard penalty, first down repeated. I did have a couple of flags to throw against both teams this week, as in what seems to be a tradition when it comes to Argo and when it comes to games between the Argos and the Ticats. I had everything all prepared, I had everything written out, and I was ready to record. The last 72 hours or so... That all changed. What went from nailing both teams for being ass clowns during the, during the last game really just became one side. We really became one sided very quickly. What we all thought 
what's going to happen inside the stadium is happening on Twitter as we speak. It's pretty much all out war right now. And to be quite honest, at this point, I know we're go- I know this is going to bring a little heat from the network on us. But I have a lot of things to get off my chest. Start, let's just start it off with a little bit of a timeline before I get into the meat and potatoes of it. While Argo fans were celebrating a lead on the field, because they won 34-20, off of it at around 9.43 local time, so probably about 15-20 minutes before the end of the game, there was a tweet sent out by a Tiger Cats fan that implied that the Argos were artificially amplifying the noise that the fans were creating. So in other words, they were pumping in crowd noise. The only proof that that was offered was that they was that they were, quote-unquote, sitting under a speaker. And the overall noise was much louder than anything they've experienced whilst, whilst sitting in a relatively dead section. Now, Almost all, just about every Argo fan saw this and came to the defense of the team, as you would expect. But here's the thing: newsflash, BMO is a loud-ass stadium. I've been to just about every game at BMO Field. I will personally attest to that fact. I just dis—I just dismissed it as sour grapes at the time because it was yet another lead that the Tigers choked away. So I just moved on. The following day, they then, the original accuser, the original poster, basically just kind of gave a little bit of a virtual fist bump to Argo fans, saying that they, that they appreciate the passion, they appreciate the passion, and they basically gave respect to those who come into the stadium, game in and game out. Now personally, now personally, I appreciate that because you don't hear that often from a from a rival. But then, fifteen minutes after that, here comes Scratching Post 2.0, also known as Three Down Nation, and we all know. And by now, we all know who it was. So I'm just going to name him. Josh Smith decided to write a little bit of a little bit of an article. To basic that basically says here's why the Tiger Cats lost. And dur- and in that little article that he wrote, he decided to give life to the accusation that the Argos were pumping in crowd noise. But he stopped short of flat out accusing the team. But he did cite all these examples of other teams getting getting nailed for pumping in crowd noise. Of course, after that, then it decided to all kick off. That's when it that's when it really kicked into high gear. Friend of the show and friend of mine, Josh McGee, highlighted the opinion that was in the article as a complete fallacy. And others were very quick, also very quick to point out that the opinion should not have been presented as a post-game analysis. Enter Potsky Wee. They not only dub- tried to double down on the accusation, but they tried to tear holes in Josh's arguments. Of course, they didn't succeed. 
But then another Argo fan suggested that, and just in just a suggestion, that they get an Argo blogger to cover the team on the same level that the Thai Cats are covered. They then said, and I quote, No one covers your team because no one cares. To say no one cares is an insult to myself, to Will, and to Clay, so the fan cast as a whole, to Ben and JB of X's and Argos, to Mike Mitchell of the CFL News Hub, to Dave Morissetti, then that's just to name a few, because we all cover this club. And that's before I even get into before I even get into the mainstream media people. To say no one cares is an insult to those who watch the Argos at home giving TSN the ratings that they crave. And essentially keep and essentially keeping the league afloat. And to say no one cares is a grave insult to to the 11,000 people who came to BMO Field despite having Drake across the street at Budweiser stage, despite having Lady Gaga at the Rogers Center, despite it being a stinking hot, hot night in Toronto, and despite Toronto traffic being the worst I've seen it in about 20 years. Now, I... Did I expect much out of Potsky? No. I don't have... I quite frankly never had any respect for, jo- for Josh Smith to begin with. On the other hand, Mike has been a guest on the fan cast, and the conversations we've had on the program have been actually very cordial. However, this has all pretty much changed my opinion of, of Mike anyway. And as far as I'm concerned, they could both stick their faces in a meat grinder and go live in the woods. What I want to know, but here's the question. Now, I haven't listened. Now, I obviously don't listen to their show because I don't give a shit about the Tiger Cats. I don't think they've ever denounced what has what their fan base is, has done, especially when it come, came to the East Final. When it comes down to fans always start in trouble, I'm not going to use the term hooligans because... Hooliganism in the CFL, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And besides, these guys aren't. These guys who come down, they're not hooligans. They just get drunk and just want to cause trouble whilst trying to, quote-unquote, have a good time at a football game. But one thing I've noticed is that whenever out of the other seven teams that come to come to Toronto, none of them give us the same kind of trouble. It's only when Hamilton shows up. Personally, I always personally I always end up hearing about fights being started, uh, beer getting thrown at people. It's ba- basically something like this is have is basically having a party, right? Where you invite the entire where let's just say everybody in the league is a per- is a person. You invite the entire league, right? And then Hamilton comes through, gets blind, gets blind drunk on your booze, and tries to shit on your carpet to assert dominance. Of course, then it gets worse when we try to come and have, try to come to Tim Hortons Field to support our team there. 
there's a reason why. There's a damn good reason why Argo fans don't go to Tim Hortons Field anymore. And if they do, salute to you guys, because you guys have a lot more courage than I do. There's a reason why we don't go. It's because we don't feel safe at your barn. So instead, uh, so you've essentially priced the detritus of your fan base out of Tim Hortons Field. Now they're going to BMO to start shit and trying to make it shit atmosphere for us. And of course, if you combine all that with security, that is slow as molasses when it comes to actually protecting people, yet quick as grease lightning when it comes to people covering sponsors on the end zone walls with artwork meant to inspire the home side, it's not a good situation if you're a home supporter. This also isn't a new issue either. I'm pretty sure if you talk to any old, any old Argo, any older Argo fan, but if you talk to any one of them, they will regale you with tales of what Labor Day at Iverwind Stadium was like. This has got to stop. Now, I know there are plenty of Tiger Cat fans out there who come to BMO. They have a great time, they cheer on their side, and for the most part, they behave. <laughs> they do what fans do, right? They basically go out and they say GG if their team loses or G or if their team wins. They actually mingle with the with they actually mingle with us in the tailgate and like I said, we we can actually have fun together. Keep in mind though that unfortunately in this case a few bad apples do spoil the bunch. As was, as was proven on Saturday night. Once again, there was violence. Now, there was also reports of Argo fans giving verbal abuse to Tiger Cat fans. So, we're not saints either. Every fan base has its assholes. I encountered... Shitty Rider fans back in 2017 in Ottawa for Grey Cup. Will has encountered shitty Ottawa fans, apparently on the regular. We've all encountered shitty Hamilton fans. So every fan base has its arseholes. Sad part is, Hamilton tends to have more arseholes than most. Maybe one day with this new code of conduct that is being imposed on fans, maybe we'll start seeing teams being held responsible and accountable for the conduct of their fans, both at home and on the road. Moving on from that, our, our, our uglies. Honestly, that, that first quarter and a half just... It looked absolutely horrible for the Argos. You know, not gonna lie, they didn't didn't look prepared. They were making a Hamilton team that, on paper, should got beat the same way. They're making them look a, a lot better than they should have. Yeah. No, you know there were guys. A lot of those communication issues that. Um, were in that BC game. Uh, Dane Evans was picking them apart, and really, 
it did not look. It just still, I mean, I think we we sometimes, you know, some of us tweet in the frustration of the moment, but you know, I I, I genuinely feel they did not look prepared. No, and and you know, like like you said, that they there was a lot of communications issues, and I mean, if you think about it, we're we've got a rookie offensive lineman who was kind of thrown into things pretty quickly. Exactly. We've got a we've got a guy playing out of position. Um, we've got um, you know, guy on the other side who's. Uh, banged up and then we've got um you know a another another guy in the the end who who's played four positions on this offensive line this year already so you've got two guys who are essentially it's at playing somewhat out of position for what they've played in the last two years so you're going to have some some communications issues that way but they at least in the fourth quarter they they at least got it figured it out. Their third and fourth quarter they figured it out. Yeah, um, well, they were they did a good job with those deep passes, and uh, you know, and and it's it, it's sometimes like I mean the first half it was also frustrating. I mean I'm, I'm going, you know, Dana Evans scrambling around you know there were a lot of times where we were close to getting to over a sack but you know we got he was able to you know move out of the pocket and get rid of the ball you know mm-hmm. our quarterback simply can't do that and it, it it's it's becoming it is becoming frustrating yeah yeah, and it was there's more, been more than one person that I've heard that uh, you know it's okay he's not reading things as quickly as he needs to to figure out how to get rid of that ball. Um, he's you know it, it almost seems tom- sometimes that he's second guessing himself a little bit. You know, it's it's not something you want every starting quarterback, um, but as opposed to how he's played in previous years. He's been able to, okay, make a horrible play, but then forget that and move on. Yeah. You know, you know, that that's, it's not really something I want out of my starting quarterback to be able to make that horrible play. But the fact that, you know, he can just shut it off and move and move on. You know, that's that's a good thing. Right. Yeah. You know, but but he still needs to. He needs to make decisions quicker. He really does. Um. Well, bad. I mean, well, we kind of touched well, on Doug's Doug's. I had, it, or, I had my ugly first. Oh, you got more ugly. Oh, geez. OK. Yeah. Well, no, I. I, I sort of. You know, the special teams did make, you know, a bit of stride this week. They did, you know, get a, a very crucial block punt for a touchdown. But Curly Gittins and Daniel Adebayo were turning kicks. 
I'm sorry, I don't want my best receiver back there returning kickoffs. Do you? No, kickoffs, punts are one thing. Kickoffs are a different story, right? Yeah. You know, I don't want to see Curly Gittins Jr. doing that. I, I don't think it's... Well, it's not. Uh, I think he's too part, too important of a piece to your offense to have him out there doing that. I understand it's kind of a stopgap. You know, they wanted Javon Leak to be the guy doing that. And but, he may be. But, he may yeah, be back. Yeah. He's close to returning, from what I understand. Yeah, and I. And I I would have I really, really put Brandon Banks back there as opposed to Curly Gittins Jr. You know, we're not using him as much in the offense. Yeah. So get him out there, get him some touches, because that's what sparked him early on in his career. You know, when when he wasn't getting the 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 looks and everything like that, he got that got into the game by returning kicks you know we did have him on on punt returns which i'm glad we did um but yeah he's not the number one receiver let's get him back there returning those those kicks and get your number one receiver onto the sidelines and uh and ready to to go for the offensive Huddle. Yeah. Um, but but at the same time, I, I, it's frustrating just watching the returns and and there being you know four or five opponent jerseys, you know, standing just outside the five yard radius, ready to make the play right away. Not much you can do with that. No. No, you really can't. You know, and I think they've they've the returners have tried, but it's just the, the blocking scheme has just not been there at all. And I'm almost, you know, at at points in this season, I've wondered, okay, can we make a call to Jeff Reinbold? You know, I'm just not seeing the spark in this in our special teams. You know, as a po- apart from the block punt that we had. Well, I mean, we, we, we all see, you yeah. know, whether whether that block punt, you know, does spark that unit at all. I mean, I mean, they they've been generally fine on you know kick and punt return coverage. I mean, they've allowed a few, um, you know, getting Jack Asar and Trevor Hoyt both in there. I think is key. Um, Jack Kassar made a couple nice tackles, and you know, Trevor Hoyt did block the punt. Um, so, you know, let, let's see where this this special team goes in the next couple of weeks. And, you know. Yeah. See see how thing, things work before, before we, you know, as you mentioned, you know, jumping the gun a little bit early. You know, that's why I haven't said much about it all season, but. 
yeah, there have been times where I've, you know, my gut reaction is to like, eh, let's maybe try and figure out you know, a different way to do this. Um, the bad, I mean, it's I, no fault of their their own, but you know, <laughs> three long snappers in a game. Yeah, you know, you, you, will you have the famous line, "Don't fuck with the long snapper"? Well. <laughs> The long snapper fucked with the game, yeah, the second one anyway. Um, and you know, we're just lucky we have three guys on our roster who have long snapped in the past. <clears throat> yes, and um, well, we'll talk. Well, uh, we'll talk in a few minutes. Uh, the Argos did address that. Yep. Problem. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I, apart from you know everything we said, I don't have much more bad. I'm, I'm ready to go right to the good. No, because no, I think we, we, you know, we, we mentioned the first half was garbage. Um, yeah. Well, I'll throw it you back could, you here. Could, bad right. here. It's not necessarily game related, but I, you know, Saturday was a brutally hot day with the humidity. Uh, you know, such that many of us chose not to tailgate because we felt, um, you know, we just didn't want to stand, you know, even if we're by the lake, we didn't want to sit up there in that humidity. But, uh, you know, Drake rescheduled his, con- his OVO concert, or it's, uh, uh, Budweiser State that, uh, that day, and, you know, Lady Gaga was playing Skydome, and, um, you know, for BMO is it's very isolated is not the right word but geographically you know you have the Gardner and the railway tracks to the north you have the lake to the south there's not many ways in and out of there and and I heard stories of people who you know didn't account for um, the time and missed parts of the game well I, I'm, I'm we missed well, the play. <laughs> we missed the kickoff and the uh, first couple plays, so you yeah. know. Uh, I don't think Nick made it there until the second yeah. quarter, and, and you know, I got to four o'clock. It's like you know, I really don't. I was at home at four o'clock. It's like you know, I really don't want to head down yet, but want to make sure I find some parking. Yeah. And the only, I guess, good thing is, as I got, <laughs> I got worried driving down that uh, they're gonna try to, like in the exhibition lots, they're gonna try to up the price because of great, but it was still the same twenty-five dollar yeah. charge. Yeah. So, but even I was, that, I was worried I wasn't, we weren't gonna get parking in our in the regular yeah. lot, um, and I mean, we didn't. We had to go a little bit further into that lot. Thank God they've they extended it uh, to the other the other lot because they usually have the barricades up. Um, but we we got one of the last parking spots in there. I, I can guarantee you that. Um, I ended up a lot. That's you're coming in when you come in off Dufferin. You're going east and then you turn left. Like it's in behind all those old. More towards the western end of the exhibition grounds. Yeah. 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 
Um, uh, I mean, remember, uh, our next two home games, we won't be driving. Nope. Be taking the train in. Yep. And stupid TDC doesn't have that uh, express from um, Dundas West Station anymore, so you're stuck with 29 bus, which <clears throat> I'm well, looking as forward to it as. Well, the 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 benefit to that is uh, Tiny Tom's Donuts. That's that's true, and, and you know we'll, we'll prep the exhibition, I guess, in a few weeks when we uh, yeah when when get we there. get there. Yeah. Um. The the good from this this game. Um. For me, and I, behind the scenes, I've been I have been doubting Cam Phillips for a while, and. Ever since I I verbally said something to you, Will, about uh, okay, I'm ready to cut him right right then and there. I believe it was after the third game. Uh, he's he's turned it around. He has won me over, and I am glad he's on our team. He's just he's shown <laughs> up and shown out. Um, Doug. And I'm going to read this verbatim for what he's put. Um, good. Do, you remember, do you remember to read Doug's bad? Yeah, he, well, he had the offense sputtering for one and a half quarters um, and all that stuff. So it's not, you know, we've already touched on that. But it is good. Chris Effin Edwards, much improved this week. Dagger pick six. Could say that was a little vindication. But this would have to be a playoff game for that to happen. But yeah, that that pick six, he was he he read that play like beautifully, he, beautifully. He, he picked it was yeah, it it was the dagger into their hearts. It was what put the game on ice, and uh, you know, coming off, you know, a a, a an offensive series that didn't look great. That pick six just kind of made us a, a, a little bit happier. Um, I mean, that, and that was the the third way they 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 scored a touchdown this game. We had offensive touchdown. We had special teams touchdown. <clears throat> even but right even between the offensive series that they sputtered. And and that pick six, we had the block punt on special teams, and then the defensive touchdown. It's fantastic. Uh, what was your what was your good will? Uh, I, I, I mean, this is very broad, but um, I, I just generally I like the way the team responded. You know the the coaching staff, you know, the adjustments from the offensive line played much better in the second half. Uh, you know, the defense played much better in the second half, and, you know, special teams got the punt return, uh, uh, punt block uh, touchdown, and, and they outscored Hamilton, you know, once, once they outscored Hamilton 28-6 to in the second half. 
And, you know, do we wish the team could play 60 consistent minutes? Yes. But, um, you know, this was an important game to 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 set the tone for the series. And, and the team responded in the second half, which hopefully carries momentum over to Friday's repeat matchup. Yep. And, well, that matchup, well, we're right right naturally right into that matchup where we're playing the tie cats again on friday yeah uh, this time in hamilton for the uh for round two of four of the ballard cup um and, and you know just looking at the the quick injury report right now I mean, it's early in the week, so you, you you have a tendency to have some guys if they're a little bit nicked up, they they sit. Um, Brandon Banks had some personal stuff to deal with, so he wasn't at practice. Um, Dejan Allen, nice to see him limited, uh, so back back uh, working out a little bit. His uh, his back is loosening up. Jawan Breskison, uh, Dejan Brissett, both uh, full participants. Josh Haggerty had a little bit of a hamstring issue, and he's back as a full participant. Um, Andrew Harris didn't uh, didn't do a whole lot. He banged up his wrist at the end of the game. Deontay Knight looks to be uh, almost healthy and getting back up to speed. Um, Benoit Marion, who uh, had the the Fumble recovery, the block, the block punt recovery for the touchdown uh, is nursing an ankle injury. Travis McFadden nursing a rib. Uh, Robert Priester uh, a, little, a little bit of a hamstring issue that he's dealing with, but he uh, he was there. Shaq Richardson, Jake Reinhardt, Eric Rogers all did not practice on Tuesday. Um, Jake Reinhardt obviously with the elbow. Um, likely not to be not to be in and uh well we did make a move uh this this week to uh shore up the long snapper they signed <clears throat> max latour and uh where is it here <coughs> maurice carnell the fourth uh, yeah Yes, who was who was uh, with the the club earlier? Um, I believe through and it was cut in training camp. I believe. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not. I mean, Latour was a long snapper for much of last year, and and he's fine. So I mean, I'm not worried about that. But having Shaq Richardson out, you know, long term is you know definitely not ideal. No. No, not ideal. And Andrew Harris, too. I mean, he hurt his wrist. You know, that last thing. He shouldn't have have even been in the game at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, I think they they need to. I think they, 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 I mean, I get Adam Boy is a rookie, and, you know, they don't want to do the Canadian-American thing at running back, but they do need to get. You know, Adam Oboye or AJ will establish at least as, as a change of pace guy. I mean, I know yeah, I, yeah. 
we just don't want you know taking ninety five percent of the running back reps. Um, and, and the thing is, you know, AJ Willette always plays well. Um, it plays well against Hamilton. Well, no, it's well, yeah, it's Ottawa usually plays well against. Yeah. But I mean, every time he's he's done everything asked of him, so give him start giving him more more of a chance. Yeah, and and I think we're. <clears throat> as far as the ratio goes, you know, we don't have that much of an issue because, I mean, we ran out of full Canadian offensive line. We yeah. had, uh, you know, a couple Canadian receivers. Like, we're, we're yeah, <clears throat> not not too worried about it. We, do, we, we don't want, yeah, but we don't want to. Let's admit it. We don't want to. We don't want to have to. That old Canadian offensive line. You know who knows? I mean, they could get better, but re- realistically, we don't want to have to do that if we can't. No, because right now, I mean, Shane. Let, let's be honest. Shane Richards is a serviceable tackle, but he's he's better suited at guard. Yeah. Phil Blake, also same thing, but much better suited as a guard. So those are your tackles right now. <clears throat> but those guys are much better on the inside. You know, we got we have guys, uh, Americans on the outside that uh, we just need to get healthy, um, who just work a little bit better out there. Um, now, if Shane Richards, who uh, we thought was going to be the the other tackle opposite Jamal Campbell when they initially drafted him, um, can make it work on the on the outside, then I have no problem with that. But looks like he's probably going to get a little bit, a few more reps on the outside. Until uh, until at least De- Dejon Allen is healthy again. Ah, uh, but yeah, going into this game, I think we we just we need to do a lot of what we did in the second half. Um, keep the Tie Cats on their toes. Um, and and just take what they give us. Not we don't need to manufacture everything all the time you know keep with the keep with the game plan but make your adjustments a little bit earlier than this than halftime please it's it's kind of killing us yeah you're not gonna be able to (laughs) to get off to a slow start in hamilton no oh well yeah I think that I would love to see a, finally a statement game here. We've we've done enough of this play to our competition. Let's just let's just stomp a mud hole in a Milwaukee dry. And after this, win one, lose one, win one, lose one. No, I want. 
And I'm still looking at my uh, early prediction. I know I I wanted a 14 and four season. That's going to be tough to get at this point. Um, but my low end was a 12 and 12 and six. So that's tough, but a little bit more attainable. But they need to start beating teams like the Ticats, who are they are clearly better than. Fantasy wise, oh, it, this is this is getting hard. <laughs> well, I mean, we're it's we won we, we won last week with Bo Levi Mitchell putting up three and a half points as our quarterback. Well, the right receivers and running backs were selected. Yeah, it's well. I mean, what what like? I just don't like the price of it. Like the quarterback price is just. No, it's it's hard. Be you know, it, yeah, you, you really have to gamble on a couple of players if you're gonna put somebody who it just seems like well, 